Hey everybody, thank you for joining me for Climb Forward Podcast number two. Today, I interview a really good friend of mine named Terrence. Terrence is a former Marine with three tours in Iraq under his belt. Every time Terrence and I talk, we always cover so much good stuff, and today was no exception. And Terrence didn't even know we were going to be recording until about 30 minutes into our conversation. I said, hey man, can we record this? He's an awesome guy to talk to and a really good friend and a great guy all around. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming my friend Terrence to the Climb Forward podcast. An estimated 22 veterans a day commit suicide. It's a tragic loss, it's a life not fully lived, and a story untold. Climb Forward takes it upon ourselves to have a positive impact on the lives of these veterans by enabling them to heal in the great outdoors, helping them to find the courage to fight, the courage to persevere, and to face a new life of new challenges. They're not alone. Life is a mountain and the journey is a climb. And what do you climb for? So we're talking about like the opiate stuff and then how it kind of like calms you down. Yeah, so for me, you know, like I said, being on, being on a downer is the opposite. It, it relaxes me. Because I'm, I'm already, I'm high, I'm high strung, hyper, but as soon as I get on an opiate, it mellows me out and it gives me the energy, but I'm not crazy. You know, I'm, I'm calm and I'm cool. And I can yeah. sit still and I can read. And I can read without being on opiates too. And I can do mundane things, but I can do it for longer periods of time. I can just sit in the room, go through books, catch up on emails, maybe talk to a few people here and there. I just have, I have more drive. And I, I think it's, just, it's, it's the dopamine. I think that's what it is, you know. But yeah. also, I also know that dopamine is directly associated with pleasure, uh-huh. where serotonin is associated with happiness. And the more pleasure we seek, the more unhappy we become. So yeah. even though I'm seeking the pleasure and it feels good, as soon as the pleasure is gone, I'm unhappy and I need another dose of pleasure. And then you get into this vicious fucking cycle as opposed to chasing serotonin, which is contentment. It's, yeah, I can take opiates, but I don't need them. I feel good without them. Yeah, I can go binge eat, but I don't want to because I know the effects of how I'm going to feel once I go have change twice and go eat McDonald's or cheeseburgers instead <laughs> of eating a french fry. Yeah. You know, I'm in a fucking coma, lethargic, angry, depressed, anxious, all that other shit. Yeah. So I do understand that, but it's still hard to move away from it. I understand that every time I seek out happiness, I'm sorry, pleasure, I'm going to be more unhappy. I understand it, but I still seek it out anyway, and I can't fucking explain it. <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of like it's kind of like what I was talking about with the, the limbic system and, like, the basic parts of the brain. Like, the, the, the stuff that was there before we developed you know, the prefrontal cortex and all this stuff, before we started having this ability to say, this is who I am and I can read books and I can learn languages and all this like really like amazing and miraculous stuff. What we had was just this basic ability to move about in our environment and to either eat or, or reproduce or sleep or, you know, drink water, right? Like the very, very basic stuff. So these neurochemicals, they're not these neurotransmitters rather they're they're not new 
Like they're not new to, to human existence. It's not like, oh, you have a prefrontal cortex now. Okay, well, here's some <laughs> dopamine and some serotonin to kind of balance everything out and keep the lights on. No, dude, this stuff is integrated in everything that we do. Dopamine, particularly for survival, and obviously I'm, I'm speaking very generally, and then serotonin, dude, like have you ever looked up what serotonin, where it is and how it's implicated? It's not just in the brain, man. It's in, like, the digestive system, it's exactly. in blood cells. It's all over the place. Dude, there's recent science that's showing that the, a lot of our stuff really is, comes from our gut. Like, there's a, lot right. of, there's a lot of sensors. Pretty Man, I'm, man, I'm, I'm going to show how dumb I am right now. There's a lot of sensors in our, in our gut that, that, that produce uh, effects on our mood uh, more, more impactfully in the brain. There's probably someone's going to hear this and be like, dude, you're so stupid. You're wrong. He, he's so wrong. But essentially, from what I've read, it's true, right? So they start looking at more of the gut bacteria environment and the pro- probiotics and the prebiotics that the gut's pretty much the new heart, you know, in a lot of ways when it comes to mood. So this stuff is all over the place. And this concept of having a balance and what is that balance and how do we strike it? Well, dude, that's why it's a it's a natural mechanism that the industries like big pharma pick up on and they exploit. <laughs> how do we make you yes, how do we make you happy? You seem a little bit down today. How's your sleep been? Well, it's all tied in together. So whenever we take a whenever I take a pill or a substance or whatever it is, um, even if it's food, right, there's always gonna be some sort of effect, counter effect, cause and effect. So and you had mentioned that. You're like, why is it when I seek something to feel good, no matter how like uh, effective or whatever it is that I always end up feeling bad and wanting more of that. Mm. It's this evolutionary principles that we have that are ingrained in us for the longest time. If one believes in evolution, all we had to do was eat and, and sleep and reproduce. That was it. man. And then for some reason that development over time, created the need to uh, group together because that made sense. When you group together, you can get more food. It takes less effort. And then you have the agricultural revolution. You have the industrial revolution. You have all this wonderful creations. And an unintended side effect is convenience. Now Mm. the caloric expenditure to do, to get anything is, is remarkably lower. If I'm hungry right now, bro, I can walk 10 feet, I can uh, spray some stuff on a pan. I don't have to. I don't have to create electricity. I don't have to build a stove. I don't have to build a fire. If I had to do all those things, number one, I'd probably fucking starve because I'm lazy. <laughs> number two, I would get a benefit and a reward just from accomplishing those things. Now you mm. take that away, and all I have to do is just, oh, I'm thirsty. Well, I've got this bottle of Evian right here. I'm taking off the cap. It's quite delicious. Well, there's no real reward in that process. None. Dude, there's, there's none. So, you know, it's this natural balance of, well, that doesn't even, it doesn't feel bad, right, to have the water there. But now I, I start to expect that. So now when I don't have it, it's like, well, I'm lazy. Now I've got to go get water. I'll just drink from the tap. You know, whatever it is. <laughs> there's always this, this, I think it's a very complicated kind of balancing system. Like I think our brains and our minds or whatever you want to call it just want balance, equanimity, homeostasis above all because that a homeostatic environment is is safe it's predictable and it's conducive to life in general that is evolutionary principle 101 well, i mean from an idiot but it's evolution it's science bro <laughs> it's, it's, science, <laughs> it's fucking bro. science all right um but yeah it, it sucks man because you know obviously i've had my struggles 
with addiction and, and you have a similar background, you know, how do we, with our addict minds, now we've seen, we've had the fruit of the forbidden tree. You know, our eyes are open to that kind of lifestyle and that kind of reward. Dude, that, that I don't know exactly what the effect is on the brain. I know there's reward systems that get enhanced and it kind of reprograms things a little bit, but just that awareness alone is dangerous because it, it's hard to compare depending on how long ago it was months, years, days, whatever it is with man, you know, this feels good. Just being able to be with my family and have conversations like this feels really good. Talking feels really good. So I can tell you right now, it doesn't feel nearly as good. Oh no. Stuff I could do. Not even close. Not even so close. The question is like, yeah, how do we, and that welcome to recovery, right? Like this is how, how do we deal with this stuff on a day-to-day basis with that knowledge? And people do it for decades. Damn. You know, this is, I guess this is the question I've always, if I can find the answer to this question, man, I'd be a gazillionaire. Do you ever get to a place where you're not constantly thinking about addiction? I haven't been there in a long time. You know, I've looked at my life, man, and I've just moved from one addiction to the next. So at 13, uh, that's when I took my first drink. We used to drink uh, 40 ounce uh, Old English and whatever else. We it was a guy we called him the bootlegger. He lived down the street. He sold. He would they would buy liquor from the store and then sell it out the house when the liquor stores were closed. And you know we were kids, man, buying liquor from an adult, but he didn't care. He was making money. Yep. And so we we would drink and and we would have fun. And and so in treatment. We learned that most addicts are built between the ages of 8 and 13. That's when most addicts take their first mind-altering substance. Some outside of that, some, you know, before that, later than that, but on average, 8 to 13. And so I was right on that cusp. That's when I took my first my first drink. And then after that, I moved to, to marijuana, and then codeine was real big in Houston. Then I moved to codeine, and then I moved to marijuana. So at 15, I was smoking weed all through high school, and I only stopped to get into the Marines. So I stopped marijuana to get into the Marines, but I actually failed my first drug test at MEPS. I failed the drug test miserably, but I told my recruiter I was smoking, and I was actually going into the Army at the time, but I failed the drug test, so I got uh, denied for a year, and then I went back, and then that's when I enlisted into the Marines. But nevertheless, so I didn't do any hardcore substances in the Marines, but I drank. So and I didn't you, drink every day. I just drank on the weekend. I'm sorry. Go ahead. How so? You were how old were you when you joined the Marines? I was 22. So how long had you been exposed to and then kind of consistently drinking, using whatever you want to call it? Was it nine years? Was, yeah. So I would say uh, at that point, uh, yeah, about eight or nine years. Easy. That's kind of dude. That's a whole lifetime. Like how that's were you? Lifetime. How were you able to to stop? Like, well, I guess you didn't. Were you able to stop before you went in? I was able to stop. That, that's the weirdest thing because I had something that was outside of me, something that right. was bigger than me to achieve. And so that drove me to stop. But I had never dealt with my addiction. I never called myself an addict. And, you know, addiction is the only disease that you have to diagnose yourself. Your doctor can't do it. Your, your mom can't do it. Your friends can't do it. You have to call yourself an addict or alcoholic. At that point, I didn't even know what addiction was. Mm-hmm. Then I didn't, because that you have that has a negative connotation 
it means you're weak because you don't let the substance control you. You control the substance. You yeah. know, that's what that's how we were taught, which is bullshit. It's going to control <laughs> you eventually. And it's controlling most people. They just don't know it or haven't accepted it yet. Right. And so anyway, <clears throat> yeah, I had, I had been exposed all that time, and I was able to stop just for that. But I just, all, most of my life, I've just moved from one substance to the next. I've never dealt with my addiction until here recently because we know from being in the program that addiction has nothing to do with drugs and alcohol. That's the symptom. The actual problem is always an emotional, spiritual malady. Mm -hmm. That's what a deficit is. And the alcohol and the drugs, that's just the symptom of it. That's the product of having a spiritual deficiency. Having some emotional baggage that hasn't been dealt with. And this is very difficult. Like, there's people that will hear this, and, you know, maybe some of them will have an open mind and be understanding, like, okay, well, yeah, I guess I can see that. Other people are going to be just like you and I were. They're going to be like, well, dude, I can drink on the weekends and be perfectly fine or whatever. Like, why? I don't understand how somebody can't stop. <clears throat> it's, it's the craziest thing. But you mentioned the spiritual aspect. And I want to tie this back into, you said there was something bigger than me. And this point, it, at, at that point in your life when you enlisted, um, it was the Army or the military service. Like, why, how was that, how did that become, like, that thing bigger than you? You know, that was something I always wanted to do since I was a kid. But my mom always talked me out of it because she's, oh, you're the only son. What if you get killed? You know, blah, blah, blah. blah. Just fear-based. Yeah. And then I knew I just never felt complete because that's something I wanted to do. So when I finally got the courage to do it, I just did it, and then I told my family I had enlisted. I I didn't ask them. I just went down and enlisted, and I said, hey, this is what I did. So that's how I I ended up uh, getting involved. And then for me, again, service was always just such a pride for me, Mm. and I didn't want to fuck that up. I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that shit worked. Yeah. And I did that. But – Again, I drank just mostly on the weekend in the Marines. We didn't go out during the week, but every weekend, I never had one. See, that's what separates an addict from a normal user, because they probably can just use on the weekend and stop. Mm-hmm. But Or they can have one drink and then stop. For me, it's always going to be progressive. It's going to yes. start off on the weekend, yes. and then it's going to end up three days a week. Then it's going to be four days a week, and then it's going to be eight days a week. <laughs> so, <laughs> dude, like, I think when I think anytime we talk of, of things like spiritual, um, and for clarification for people listening, obviously not just religious, not talk, that's just a mechanism of connecting to something bigger. And that bigger thing can be purpose, service. I mean, it, it's complicated, but putting it in simple terms, something that means more to me that I can contribute towards is essentially mm. how I see it. So when we talk about spiritual unwellness or spiritual dis-ease, like looking back on it, are you able to tell like what that, because you, now you're, you're in the military um, and you've got that, you're working on that service component, that thing that's bigger than you that was able to get you to stop. What do you think it was that, that precluded you from being able to not drink? Oh, you know, that's a good question that I don't, I don't have an answer to. Right. Because I didn't I didn't give it much thought like that at the time. You know? The only yeah. thing I can say just just off the top of my head was the consequences. 
Yes. You know, I didn't want to face the consequences of knowing that, hey, if I got caught drinking and driving or I was intoxicated, I could lose my rank, I could lose money, I could be confined to the barracks. Yes. You know, that was the only thing that kept me in order during that time because yeah. I didn't want to lose my military career. Right. The prospect of pain. You said like the perfect word, uh, progressive, <clears throat> and how it progresses and the direction that it progresses. It's not linear. It's not just, well, one drink becomes five drinks, becomes ten drinks. I mean, that's part of it. That's part uh, of it. But the emotional aspect, everything that's attached to it, uh, getting into other substances, and then the, the route that that takes, it becomes this roadmap in three dimensions. That, and you're not, you, don't, you're, you don't know where you're going. You don't right? know it where just, you're going. It, it goes where it goes. Um, but before we get into that, you know, so you joined the Marines. Um, you, you made it through MEPS, obviously, which I didn't know people could fail the drug test and actually get in. How did you yeah. pull that off? Like, what year was it? If you were 22. What, what year was this? This was 2002. 2002, okay. 2003, somewhere around that, because it was right after 9-11. Right after 9-11. Yep, yeah. that changes things, but go yeah. ahead. Yeah, so I, I, I call the Army because I'm like, oh, I want to be Special Forces, oh, I want to be a Ranger, yada, yada, yada. Never even thought about being a Marine at that point. And anyway, I told my recruiter, hey, man, I'm, I'm smoking weed. And he goes, I got something for you to take to stop smoking, I mean, to, to pass the drug test, but you have to stop smoking for a week which I didn't do that. I was smoking up to the night of the test, still trying uh, yeah. to drink that substance and drink that gallon of water, thinking uh-huh. it was going to flush my system and I would pass. Now, right. mind you, I had to get a waiver because I had a possession of marijuana charge on my record. Yeah. So I ended up having to get a waiver for that. So not only was I coming in with a marijuana possession charge on my record, Mr. Right. I had to get a waiver for that. Now I just failed the drug test. Yeah, I'm surprised I wasn't permanently disqualified. It's not looking good for you <laughs> at that point. It's like it's one thing to be like, look, I had a problem. I, I cleaned up, and I'm good. But when you have the the indicator that might be a problem, and another indicator that's currently a problem, yeah, that usually doesn't work out well. But you said, and this is really really important. It was 2002. Our nation had just been attacked. Very recent, like hell, dude. I look, I think about nine eleven right this moment, right? That was nineteen years ago, but I, I just remember it like it was yesterday. So the time isn't always time, and this had just happened at that point. They, the point I'm trying to make is, when there's times of conflict, and I don't want to say war just yet because that was never really declared. In times of conflict or war, whatever you want to call it, rules kind of the lines kind of get blurred and wow how about that dude they're taking people out left and right for having an alcohol related incident now right maybe if you have two and that can be you stumbled back on the base you didn't drive you didn't do anything wrong necessarily you know poor decision making but whatever you're human that's an ARI like that's one strike against you they put you in captain's mask and make an example out of you this is 2002, though. You have every indicator in the world that you probably have some issue that the Marines don't need, that the military doesn't need. <laughs> able to get in. Seriously. Dude, I had to jump through hoops, too. I had, a, I had a possession charge in my background, but I wasn't – I hadn't touched anything. I was 17 when I got that. I was 23 when I went to join. And, bro, they put me through my paces, and that's what uh, kept me from going immediately 
to special forces. I had to put two years in. But anyway, this isn't my story. It's yours. So you're 2002, you joined, you made it through MEPS. So what did you want to – you said you wanted to be a ranger, you wanted to do special forces, um, and then the Army thing kind of got abruptly kanked. Well, then going to the Marines, like, why the Marines? Why did you pick Marines? And, and this, this is the craziest story, but this is why I ended up picking the Marines. So I was a barber at the time. I was working at a barber shop, and one of the barbers next to me, he was a Marine uh, back in Vietnam. And he always told me, man, consider the Marines. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to the Marines. They crazy. Fuck that shit. I don't want to do that. So I checked every other branch. The Air Force straight up told me, no, no, you got a possession charge. She felt that, ma'am, we're not taking you. Yeah. The Navy, they were okay with it, but they wanted me to wait six months because at the time you had to line up from basic training to your MOS school had to be right by each other. Mm-hmm. And the MOS that I was trying to pick, which was uh, being a medic, they didn't have a school until like six months. But I didn't want to wait. I was ready to go. And I remember this is what made me even consider the Marines. I was watching the the war in Iraq on TV because by this time we had went into Iraq and then Afghanistan, and they had some embedded reporters with at the time were Marines, but I didn't know who they were. And they were driving in a Humvee. They took fire. The Humvee was fine, wasn't disabled. They stopped the Humvee. They got out. They engaged the building. They shot the building up for probably five or ten minutes till it was nothing coming back at them. Then they got in the Humvee, and then they kept going. And I was like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> and then my boy said, man, that's the Marines. I said, oh, shit. I want to know what they know. I mean, what gives you the balls to stop in the middle of a combat zone when you could have kept going because somebody dared shoot at you? And so that's what made me say, okay, let me let me think about the Marines. And then I went in, and they accepted me with open arms. They said, look, we kind of like people with a little background because we know you rough around the edges. If we polish you up, then we can mold you into, we, into what we want you to be. And also, they was like, look, we don't care about anything else but physical fitness. If you're <laughs> physically fit, we so can true. take that discipline and we can put it into whatever we want you to learn. So you just have to be able to hit this run, do these pull-ups, and you'll be fine. And so that's what I did, man. I went and trained and trained, and then I was able to do, you know, 10 pull-ups coming in, which was, which is not bad. The bare minimum is like two or three, and then mm-hmm. run three miles in maybe 21 minutes, which is still not too bad, coming straight off the street. And so that's what won, won them over, man. I was physically fit. And they felt like, hey, you're a little rough around the edges, but we'll clean them up. Plus, it was 9-11. If you could yes. fog a mirror, yes. hey, you could get in. <laughs> so <laughs> I fogged up the mirror, and it was like the best decision I made, man. I excelled because I was craving discipline and mm. structure and regiment. So I, I thrived in that environment. So that's how I ended up picking the Marines, just on a fluke. I can't say, hey, uh, from day one, I knew I was going to be a Marine. I didn't know that. Right. I had no intentions of going to the Marines because I heard such horrible things. You know, oh, they're going to be crazy. They're on the front lines. You're going to get killed. Don't do it. Yeah. And it was total opposite of that. Yeah. I saw Full Metal Jacket. That's why I didn't join the Marines. I was like, <laughs> no way, man. I don't need that kind of drama in my life. <laughs> Just from the boot camp alone. I was like, and then even going into boot camp in the Navy, I was like, oh, man, somebody's going to be crazy and kill themselves. And 
It's so stupid, but Hollywood representation of just the unreality. Of, the uh, unreality, bro. Yeah, man. So you mentioned MOS for people that don't know. That's Military Occupational Specialty Code. It's just a, a four-digit number, four digit number that, that says what your job is. <clears throat> and that can indicate not only what you do, but what you're capable to upgrade to. So given people that don't know uh, what that means, just kind of what that is. So you, what was your, your initial MOS? What was your initial job? My initial job, so I had, I actually had two MOSs. So my first MOS and my primary MOS, which I still actually use to this day, was the 0431, which is embarkation logistics. And okay. what that is, that's planning. We call it beans, band-aids, and bullets. Right. That, that's planning the movement of whatever unit you are part of. So it, whether it was a helicopter unit or a fixed wing or a grunt unit, infantry unit, you have to get this unit from – CONUS, which is the continental United States, the theater, which is the combat zone. Mm-hmm. And then once you're in theater, you're moving around from location to location from, we call it FAR, the forward operating base. So you have to move around. You're not in one location and you have to plan how are you going to get from point A to point B. So we have to set up shop in a foreign combat zone as though we were operating right here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So you got to have all your equipment to fix things. For instance, if you drive it in trucks, you can get a flat tire. The axle can break. Something, you know, whatever. So you have to plan for these things. We got to have mechanics to fix it. You got to eat. You have to drink water. You have to keep your ammo uh, resupplied. You have to have fuel. And so somebody has to think, how are we going to get what we need from here to there and from there to there? And mm-hmm. so that was, that was basically my job. And, I, yeah. of course, I didn't do it by myself, but mostly when we leave the United States to go to theater, we're either using a naval ship or we're using an Air Force uh, a C-130, a C-17, or a C-5. Yep. Those are our three modes of transportation. Mostly today we're using C-17s, which is just a huge cargo jet, and they can hold, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds. Mostly we operate with short tons. So that, that's a lot of weight, basically. And then my secondary MOS, I was a 0351, which is an assaultman or a breachman. So mm-hmm. it can be anything from carrying a machine gun, which usually we operate with a 240 Golf or 240 Bravo, or uh, entering a door, taking a door off the hinges, you know, planning how we're going to get into a building. So it depends on your rank. The lower rank you are, <laughs> yeah. you, you go can you explain? <laughs> can you explain that real quick? It depends on your rank. <laughs> Yeah, there's people like, rank. oh well, people are gonna assume that oh, the higher rank gets the better the 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 better gun or something like that. Can you can you expound on a second on what the reality is when it comes oh, yeah. to rank? Yeah. So uh, rank in the infantry unit is, is everything. So if you the lowest rank obviously is a private, which most people don't come to the fleet marine marine corps force as a private. You're usually a private first class unless something happened to you, you got in trouble or something like that. So you got private first class all the way up to the highest officer you're going to see just patrolling around usually is a, is a captain. Sometimes you can see a major. It's rare to ever see a lieutenant colonel or colonel. So mm-hmm. when you own that, then that's on the officer side. So the enlisted side is your private all the way up through usually your gunnery sergeant. So if you have a private first class, they're going to be the point person. They're mm-hmm. going to carry the heaviest gun. There they're going to probably pack the ammo and the water. Yep. And they going into the building first. The officer is going to be in the back, not because he's a pussy, but because he has to control the unit. 
if right. he gets killed first, you're in trouble. So, yeah, you got the next man up mentality, but this guy is skilled at leading us into these missions and making sure we're safe. That's their job, calling in air support if we need it, making sure we resupply, just all the thinking that goes into, you know, an operation like this. So the lower-ranking guys are going to do the bullshit bitch work. We call it perfect, private first class, perfect for cleaning. You're doing all the cleaning. <laughs> you you catching the bullets. You're doing that shit. So as you move up in rank, then you fall further back in the line. There's, a direct, back. there's a direct inverse relationship between rank and the amount of physical burden that you have to carry, right? <laughs> now, right. The, the mental and emotional burden is true um, when it comes to – actually, it's, it's a direct relationship when it comes to gaining rank, right? So the more rank you get, like, you're not carrying as much stuff. You're not carrying the super heavy – the 240, by the way, is a belt-fed, gas-operated machine gun. We mount them on trucks. Like, the thing is huge. It's a lot huge. of firepower. It's a 7.62 millimeter. It's, it's awesome. It's great. Um, but the, carrying that thing around – yeah, like I said, we mounted it on vehicles, <laughs> two of them. <laughs> Usually we'd have dual 240s. But, but lower rank, um, at least enlisted, you're going to carry more stuff. Higher rank, you have more of this, the, the mental burden of planning the operation, of making sure you get from A to B, and then knowing all the contingencies. So that goes kind of in line with the logistics stuff, like even being new and having to deal with all this logistics. Logistics are a nightmare. Like we don't pull the trigger and kick down the door without all the logistics having been taken care of. Like if, if you're missing a check in that box, you may not get out the wire. You won't train. Like, and there's a, a bunch of other stuff that goes into it. Um, but you went in there. You've got the, the breacher uh, position. You've got the – were you the point man when you were first coming in? I was, I was and I wasn't. It just depends because by this time I was already a corporal. So I usually had people under me at this point. I came yeah. into I came into the infantry uh, a little bit higher ranking, which was good. Yeah. My first job was uh, logistics, so it just depends on what operation we was doing and where we were. Right. So if we if we were out somewhere and they needed experience at this time, then hey, I'm I'm up. Otherwise, then I get to kind of fall back and direct traffic. But you said something key: as you move up in rank, you're dealing with more of the emotional baggage. So if somebody mm-hmm. gets killed. You take on that personally because you feel like, man, I got this dude killed. You know, I sent him in there. The officer, he's like, I put him in that situation. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I would have done X, he would still be alive. Now yeah. I got to go look at his family and say, hey, I, I got your son murdered. So you wear a lot of the emotional baggage as you move up in leadership. Just right. for anything, or mm-hmm. not, that's an extreme case. But let's just, like you said, somebody come in and, and they drunk and they get, a, they get a, <laughs> yep. what we call an NJP, a non-judicial punishment. You take on that responsibility. Damn, I didn't know this, this Marine had problems going on. Maybe if I would have engaged him more, I would have known he had family problems, and that's why he was drinking, so I let him down. That's the burden you take on as you become more of a leader. You take on the emotional baggage. You may not be doing the physical as much, but you're more in charge emotionally. So either way, you fuck. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. It, for people to really walk away with an understanding, just just end it with that. Like it's kind of because even if you don't take responsibility, and most human beings, we're gonna find fault in our own patterns, in our own uh, something we did or didn't do, could have done whatever. 
and take responsibility for it. Dude, the first guy, Jason Wood, that I interviewed, he was an Army officer. They lost a lot of guys. And you know, oh, he had to gosh. go to the funerals. He had to talk to the families. You know, mm. I, I've been to, to quite a few of the memorial ceremonies. And, it, you know, it's I never had to have that sort of involvement, you know, unless I just happened to, to really know somebody um, and know their families. And even then it was like I just – I never took really – the responsibility of something. I just never, I just wasn't, it wasn't in the stars for me is what I'm saying. But for people like that, it, it is. And that's a totally different reality. And even if you don't take that burden and that responsibility on yourself, there's going to be people that way outrank you. They're going to force it on you and be like, come up with the answers for why this happened and come up for solutions of how yes. it's never going to happen again. And oh, in, in the post nine 11, immediate post nine 11 uh, era, Stuff like haircuts and, and ARIs, and it just wasn't a big deal because there was a, a mission deal. to do, right? Now, all that stuff that's being forced on our guys, a lot of it is haircuts, rank, order, mm-hmm. discipline, like all of that stuff. Um, real quick, we had an incident when I was overseas, and I was kind of the, I was the swim buddy with this guy. <clears throat> and I remember before I left, I was like, hey, man, are you good? And he was with some of our Marsog dudes. So he was with Americans. We were in... Uh, an American-ish country for the most part. You know, it wasn't combat operations by any point. Anyway, long story short, it turned out to be a thing, and then I woke up with a bunch of text messages and missed phone calls, and, like, it it just blew way out of proportion. And they're like, dude, like, why did you do this? You, Why did you do this? Like, why did you let this happen? And I'm like, my God. (laughs) Like, I thought I did my due diligence. He's a grown-ass man. I gave him the option to get in the cab with me, and he was with Americans. So, but I felt horrible about it. But yeah, it's an emotional burden. And thankfully, the guy didn't. Nobody died, right? I, it's just that's something else entirely. Um, where did you go when you were in the Marines? Where did you deploy to? So I did. I did. I did all of my deployments to Iraq. So I did um, three deployments to Iraq because, like I said, when I went in and we was rocking and rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I got into the Marine Fleet Force, and three months later, I was on my first deployment. Okay. You know, I was always told, oh, it's going to probably be a year or two before you deploy. They was already working up for the deployment when I got there. Mm-hmm. So I was out there doing three months. I came back maybe for seven months. Then I was on my second deployment. Then I was back for like a year. And then I was on my third deployment. And so all of my deployments, real de- we, didn't, we didn't have any time for training when I was in. Mm-hmm. So before I got in, they used to do all the cool stuff, you know, go all over the world and train in different regions. But once, once that war kicked off, that was the end of that. Everything was in and out of Iraq or Afghanistan, back and forth, right. back and forth. So all of my deployments were to uh, Afghanistan. The only trainings we did were either in uh, Yuma, Arizona, or 29 Palms, just working up to deployment. So it was just one fucking deployment after the next. And and that's the only only reason I got out. I asked before I reenlisted on another contract. I just wanted to guarantee that I could at least do four years in a non-deployable unit. Right. And I was kind of led to believe that was going to happen. And then when I got ready to sign, it was terminology like maybe, probably we're going to try. And mm-hmm. I already know that means it ain't going to happen because once you get experience, they want you to keep going. Yeah, because you gotta so you gotta assimilate experience with new new boots, so yep. you can train them up and school them up. And I was just burnt out. I just wanted some time downtime, not to deploy, and then I would have been fine. I probably would have did my twenty years and retired. 
but they couldn't guarantee me that, so I was like, ah, I'm getting out. And I kind of regret it, I'm not going to lie, because I missed the camaraderie. I just I just missed the, the whole structure of the Corps. It's just a, a lot different than being a civilian. So all of my deployments were to Iraq. Yeah, and that's it's really important that you mentioned <clears throat> they want to keep it. So being good at your job, having experience, these all are, are good things in and of themselves. But now when it comes to wanting to diversify, wanting to have choice, and, you know, we're human beings, man. Military or not, <clears throat> there's going to be that. This is kind of old hat. And maybe some of the purpose in, in that uh, section has kind of gone away a little bit. Because what were, what were these deployments like for you? Like when you went, what were each one of these deployments like? Oh, man, they, they were brutal. And then I went in the summertime on each deployment. So Nice. You know, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we're talking 120, 130 heat. I mean, yeah, I'm from Texas and I'm used to the heat, but even this was hot. Yeah. So it, it was just brutal. It's brutal on the equipment. It's brutal on morale. It's brutal on, on your food. It's brutal on the water. You know, it, it's just brutal. So I, I give you a, a good example. We had some uh, we had some Marine Force Recon, which is a special forces unit. They do a lot of reconnaissance missions and stuff like that. What we were having problem doing, they would be in the mountains in Afghanistan, and what we had a problem with was getting them cool water because you have to do drops, and then they have to go and get the equipment so they can resupply. You can't just drive up there and take them equipment. Right. So we would fly over and drop the equipment, and. Literally, they would drop blocks of ice. So by the time they get the water, it's cool water to drink because yeah. it was so fucking hot. Because if you drop room temperature water, it's too hot to fucking drink it. So just, just simple shit like that, that right. you kind of take for granted. So these deployments were fucking brutal because yeah. we did 12, 12, uh, 12 on, 12 off. So you would, you would do 12-hour shifts. I worked night shifts, which even though it's hard, it was it was coinciding with – U.S. time. So I was up when people were up in the U.S. So that was cool right. because I could call my family and they would be awake. But working nights is working nights. It's still hard on the body, even though I was still on U.S. time. And you didn't get many days off. So you, I'm, I remember maybe having two or three days off here and there. And then we, if you're lucky, you get what's called R&R, rest and recovery, where they send you to Cutter for a couple of days to go get some downtime. But as you move up in rank, that mm -hmm. goes away. The oh, lower yeah. rank people are going to get that first. So you just 12 on, 12 off, seven days a week, you know, and, and that was it. And it was seven-month deployments for us. If you were more in an admin job, you could do a year, but everybody else only did seven-month deployments. But the Army was even worse because they were doing 12- and 15-month deployments, you know, as grunts, yeah. which is yeah. fucking brutal, like double what we were doing. Yeah, Seven months is brutal. So every deployment was brutal, but it, it got it got easier because we got it, it got more luxury. So my first first deployment was tent city. Everybody living in tents. By my second and third deployment, we had these what, what were called cans, and they were like trailer homes without running water. Mm -hmm. They had you know remote AC. I mean the defect. These cafeterias were like lubies on steroids. For those who don't know what Luby's is, it may not be in a region. It's just a huge cafeteria with all types of, you know, food. You had healthy food. You had a snack bar. You had fast food. We ate better there than we ate in the state. Mm -hmm. So the food was fucking amazing. We had beautiful workout facilities. 
So you could always release the stress working out, but, you know, and then we didn't have, of course, we didn't have Internet in the living facilities, but you can go to the Internet Cafe and make phone calls. So by my third deployment, this shit was set up like little city. It was fucking beautiful. Mm-hmm. That first deployment was brutal because we didn't have any of that shit. You barely had Internet. You could call home maybe once every few weeks if you were lucky, and we lived in tents just right next to each other. Right. You know, so it was, you know, we pissed in bottles and it was horrible. You know, mm-hmm. it was fucking horrible. And yeah. then you, you got sand, you got the sandstorms. So you're trying to keep your weapon constantly clean. It's always full of sand. And that's like the most important responsibility you have is to keep your weapon clean. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Marine, is, Marine Corps is fanatical about that shit. I right. mean, we spend two hours a day cleaning these fucking weapons. And that's your lifeline. If that we always had a joke, you had you always had like an M4, M16, and some kind of nine mil. If you were shooting a pistol, you in trouble. You your pistol should never come out the holster. Yeah, you always want your rifle working. So it was just brutal that first one. Second, not not as brutal. The third one by the end, we had all these you know rules in place, rules of engagement. You you can look at a terrorist, but there's nothing you can do to them unless they're doing something to you. It was just, it was crazy. Oh, it was just crazy. It was horrible. I'm, I'm glad I left when I left. Let me just say that. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned it's complicated because you don't miss the logistics nightmare. You don't miss living out of a bag. You don't miss. I have no control <laughs> over whether or not I'm going to be sleeping in a tent, or whether or not I'm going to be mortar rounds, whether or not it's going to be internet. Like it's funny. I like when we deploy. I'm not wondering like. You know, am I going to get killed? I'm wondering, like, is there going to be internet? <laughs> like, am I am I going to have cell service? You know, like, again, by the time I came in, you know, they there was so much red tape that you know not a whole lot was getting done. Even by the premier special forces, like they were doing stuff, um, but even that was kind of curtailed. What was it like coming back from these deployments? So you know, you mentioned that there was amount of time between each one of these deployments. It, was that enough? Well, clearly it wasn't enough time to kind of recuperate and get ready. Like there's a there's an ongoing kind of burnout feeling that it sounds like you felt. So what was it like in the downtime between deployments? Yeah, so, okay, so that first deployment, I'm not going to lie, when you come back, you kind of feel like the shit. Yeah. Because you're not really a Marine if you don't deploy. That was the mindset, you know, and that's kind of the psychological brainwashing to get you used to deploying and going into combat without – being extra afraid and shit. They made you feel like you weren't living up to your responsibility as a Marine if you were in a unit that didn't deploy. And so when you come back, you kind of feel like, okay, I'm a fucking Marine now. I deployed. I did my first deployment. So you go through that phase on that first one where you're feeling like the shit. And then actually after that wears off, you kind of go into this lull, not a depression, but you, you kind of feel like something is missing because when you the one good thing about being deployed is everybody's together, you there with each other all the time, so you're not leaving and going home. You you build up a camaraderie and a brotherhood and a sisterhood like never before. And then when you get back, poof, everybody go to their personal lives. They're going home to their wives and kids. You're going home to your lonely apartment. So you kind of feel isolated. Yeah. So you almost look for the next deployment. So you can feel that camaraderie again. Mm. And, you know, so you go through that. Then for some people, they go through the, the, the phase of thinking about some of the shit they've seen and had to do. And that fucks them up. Because you take a kid out the suburbs 
who's never shot a gun, and then you're asking him to do X, Y, and Z. So you go through that phase. For me, the burnout just came from the detachment from normal life. Mm-hmm. Like you just said, my internet, being able to drive my car, just knowing that I was getting ready to go back to that shit for seven months, that's depressing. But once you get out there, you get kind of comfortable, then all of that goes away because you, you lose in one thing as far as your comfortability, but you gain in something else, which is a camaraderie, a brother and a sisterhood. So for me, the real burnout came once I left the Marine Corps because I think I masked it up while I was in there because I was always busy. I was always the, the next thing to do, uh, the next competition, competing with the guy next to me. So right. it kind of kept my mind occupied. But once you leave, that separation anxiety hits you really, really hard. And it's like you don't have a sense of purpose. Because yeah. in there, I was Sergeant Scott. Out here, I'm no fucking body. Identity. Identity. I had yeah. no identity when I left. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy because now it becomes something past tense. I was, I know once a Marine, always a Marine. But, you know, it's like I was a Marine. You know, I was staff sergeant this, I was sergeant that. <clears throat> For me, it was, you know, this thing that I did, even though people would still see me as that, I know very intimately that I'm not that anymore. Like, whatever that is, the title, the, the day-to-day, where I'm going, what I'm doing, the pattern of life is completely shifted. And then it's, it's like that one day, and then abruptly it's not like that anymore. <clears throat> and that transition, and this happens with coming back from deployment, it happens with leaving a job it happens with having a kid for that matter any like big life change oh like, yes okay sir. renegotiate what and who am i and it's like and if that's if you've got everything else going well in life which i didn't at the time then that's still like an interesting phase in your life for some people it can open them up they typically from uh military types they grow the hair grow the beard yeah go the complete opposite direction um but for people like I know I can only speak from my own experience. For people like me, like I just had a, a, a mess of stuff to deal with, and and then this this identity that I wasn't ready to let go of. I didn't know it, but I wasn't ready to let go of it because I had the burnout and I had all the you know the the expectations that weren't met and what have you. It's a lot of that's luck of the draw. Uh, but you said the real burnout happens when you get out because you don't have that thing to look at anymore. You don't have that guidepost. No, say, this is what I'm doing today. Whether I came up with it or somebody else pushed it upon me, whether I like it or not, this is what I'm – now I have to – well, I get to create it for myself, right? But that can lend itself to I'm not doing jack shit today because I've got all this other stuff that I don't know how to deal with. I mean, for me, dude, I didn't, I didn't realize I was going to be homeless, you know? And, the, like, that's not something I do. But because <laughs> of this detachment, because of this just – whole swell of other stuff I was trying to deal with. You know, this is sometimes, this isn't the narrative of every veteran that comes no, out, right? Um, some people, man, they just, they're just on fire. They did their four, eight, 12, however many years, or they retired. And they just have that, that thing about them to where they can navigate the next area of their life. Maybe because it meant so much to you. And then it kind of didn't, maybe there was a, a disappointment there. I don't know. And that's why I, I continue to have these conversations with people because I want to understand my own story because I don't get it. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't understand why 
you know, things happen the way they happen and why I, I, I have this sense that I should be able to do more, better, different than I'm currently doing. And it's met with the frustration that I'm currently not. And it's, it's a weird mm-hmm. thing, but, but to put it back on you and your story. So you leave the Marines. How long are you in for? I was in for eight years. Okay. Eight years of your life. So that's eight years of, of doing all that stuff. What did you have a plan before you got out? Yeah. So the, the original plan was, you know, I saved up quite a bit of money. You know, you don't make a ton of money like the contractors were making when oh, you deployed, yeah. but you get a hazardous pay if you extra pay. So I, I, I got out with quite a bit of money saved up. My plan was, Hey, use this GI bill. I was, I was one of the first group to use the, the new post nine eleven GI bill. So cool. they hadn't really worked out the kinks yet, but you got the you got the um um you got the housing allowance, the BAH depending on basic allowance for housing, depending on what state you're in. And then you got your tuition paid for and your books. So it was beautiful. So my original plan was to just go to school. I saved up enough money to where I didn't have to work the first two and a half years I were, I was out. So I was able to just knock out a bunch of school and I was just trudging along and everything was good. No problem. But then for some reason, I, like you said, I can't explain it. I just hit a brick wall mm-hmm. and I no longer felt relevant. I no longer felt connected. And I didn't even know what I was doing in school at this point. Like I originally started off with uh, political science. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a politician. Then I went and changed my major to economics. Then I went and changed my major to dietetics, nutrition. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I just dropped out. I left school because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing at this point. Right. So I just went through this major identity crisis, and I was lost for a couple of years. Eventually, I finished with a degree in nutrition because that was my real passion, exercise and fitness. But instead of getting, you know, instead of being in college four years, I was in college like six years, you know. Because <laughs> changing my major and couple of victory laps, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, I got and, you. and I've been struggling ever since. Ever since then, and then uh, uh, maybe a year or two later, after that, after this whole college debacle, then that's when the opiate addiction hit me. Right. You said struggling ever since. That was ten years ago. Yeah, that was ten years ago. Yeah, I said it previously in our talk that, you know, time isn't always time. Like, I have this notion that it should be a linear progression, right? Like, okay, after this point, I get this, and then I become this kind of person, and then I go and do this. So by now, I should have, you know, house, two cars, wife, 1.3 kids, and it's just unrealistic because, again, (laughs) all this other stuff, like some of the burnout, some of – I don't know what you went through and if you even wanted to talk about it. Dude, you were in Iraq when – the getting was going like it, you were there, man. So I don't know if like you had any of that to deal with, if you wanted to talk about that, but that gets factored in, like the whole thing gets factored in. And now we have this, this whole new lifestyle and you chose school and then you realize that, okay, this isn't, I don't really know why I'm doing this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting because we try to redefine and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, redefining what this purpose is. It's one thing to write it on paper and to have a plan and five-year goal and 10-year goal and even to follow through with it. But, but to really have that, like, emotional attachment. And it all comes down to why am I doing this? I have to have that. And if I don't have that, if I don't have that, that gut reaction to why, then that can completely fall away. And then you start introducing substances. Um, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to draw. I don't want to connect the dots between veterans and substance use. That's not my point here. Uh, I don't. It's 
really what I want to connect the dots is between the lack of purpose that you get from coming away from something like that, because that's a very unique job, whether it's logistics or what have you, and then transitioning to civilian life. That loss of something is a grieving process, and it can be, in a way, depending on the loss, traumatic. It can be absolutely traumatic. The trauma and the substance use can be related, very much so. And you mentioned that with yourself, with the opiate use. So you had the drinking in the Marines, and, you know, obviously that was kept under control. And, by the way, drinking in the military is like breathing and <laughs> in and out on a daily basis. Oh, Nobody cares. Sure. Right. Just don't, don't take too much air. Yeah. <laughs> don't breathe too weirdly. And don't do anything <laughs> stupid while you're breathing, and you can keep breathing. <clears throat> but that was mostly controlled and kind of just, you know, whatever. It's just something I'm doing while I'm conquering my life as a Marine. That's um, right. Did the drinking continue as soon as you got out? You know, it, it did, but it wasn't it wasn't out of control. It wasn't out of control. I still only drank every once in a while. I had so I got out, got a girlfriend, which I probably shouldn't have done. I mean, I was let me see, I was out in July. I think I was in a relationship by August, September, which is probably a horrible decision, especially for her. But anyway, so I had a girlfriend and she didn't really drink at all. She didn't do drugs. She just drank a little. So when we would go out to clubs and bars, we would have a drink or two. But it was nothing crazy. Periodically, I would get drunk. But it's still, everything, I was still controlled. For about three years, I lived a perfect, normal life where I just went to school. I wasn't working because I didn't have to. And I was working out every day, getting into fitness certifications and all that stuff real heavy. And then it was just like I fell off the map. So I broke up with my girl because eventually it was just too – the stress of the relationship was too much for both of us. I just wasn't mentally ready. But this is where I fucked up the most. I originally came out wanting to be a firefighter. So I was told that if I got diagnosed with PTSD that I couldn't do any civil service job, no firefighter, no police. So help was made available to me to transition, counseling, psychiatric care, medication if I needed it. I don't want to shit on the VA like they didn't help me. They extended every opportunity to help me. It wasn't like the Vietnam vets. We weren't getting spit on. By this time, people were patriotic. They loved veterans. Every piece of care was made available, and I denied all of it. I told them I was fine. I didn't need it. A lot of it was prideful. Mm-hmm. My brain is not broke. I'm fine. That's for other people. That's not for me. I'm normal, but none of that was true. And because I denied all this help, I never worked on myself. And had I worked on myself initially, maybe I wouldn't have been into the substance of opiates because mm-hmm. I would have known that I had emotional trauma, not only from the separation uh, from the military, which is equivalent to a divorce. It's the same, it's the same feeling, not only from the, the trauma of combat, but unresolved childhood trauma that I've never had dealt with. I probably would have worked on these things like I'm doing now, mm-hmm. you know, after all this fucking tragedy that I caused in my life. Right. But had I done that at the beginning, maybe I would have avoided this, but would I be the same person that I am today? No way. So the things that I've endured is helping to shape me for who I am today. So I am grateful for those, those failures because I can turn those. Uh, we always say we turn our pain into a story. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. that, that pain can help somebody else down the road. So I'm grateful for that. I test become my testimony. So 
Um, but, yeah, so that's what ended up happening. I denied the help. I didn't get the treatment. And then because of that pain, and I, I learned this in treatment, which was, which, was, uh, which was interesting, that a lot of people who experience post-traumatic stress, which doesn't just come from combat, if you were assaulted, if you were raped, if you were robbed, all of these things can cause post-traumatic stress. So I don't want to just limit it to a combat experience. Right. But anything that causes post-traumatic stress in your life, a lot of the substances that people with that abuse is opiates for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because the opiates, you know, make you kind of repress uh, your memories because you don't remember a lot of stuff. You know, your intuition goes down. It kind of numbs your feelings. So I don't know if that's why we ended up on opiates, but it's a direct connection between post-traumatic stress and opiates. Not saying that everybody with PTSD is going to end up on opiates, but a lot do. Right. And so, for instance, so I didn't even know this. I didn't even know what an opiate was when I took it. It was purely on accident. I took it, and it was the best feeling I ever had. All of my pain went away. My dopamine went up, and voila, I was off to the races. But I kind of want to circle back while I'm thinking of it yeah. from something you said earlier. You are absolutely right that serotonin is made in the stomach, in the gut mostly, and sent to the brain. Mm-hmm. Just like now we're discovering 70% of our immune system is in our stomach, the rest being in the lymph nodes around the body. But knowing this and knowing what I know about nutrition, it's a direct correlation between hormonal balance and substance abuse, hormonal balance and acting out behaviors, whatever those may be, whether it's violence, anger, rage, substance abuse, binge eating, any type of addiction, any type of acting out. And so what I've been working on now is not only am I dealing with my emotional trauma and which is going to help me deal with my substance abuse, but I'm also working on my hormonal balance by mm-hmm. taking care of what I put in my stomach. I don't do that 100% of the time. Right. But 80% of the time I'm doing my best to stay hydrated, put the right foods in my body, put the right supplements in my body, exercise, mm-hmm. meditate, and get decent sleep. And I've seen a drastic improvement in my impulse control because yeah. that's, that's a problem for me as well. I'm impulsive. So I just moved from drugs to shopping. So I ain't taking <laughs> substances right now. But if I see a fucking book online, I'm buying it. If I see something I want, it's, it's coming through Amazon, which is another form of addiction. It's like it all these addictions just keep popping up. So, yeah, I, I haven't used alcohol because that really wasn't my thing. But addiction is showing up in other areas of my life. You know, I a lot of people are like, you know, do you just substitute one addiction for another? Honestly, I have no, I have no idea. Right? Maybe, maybe that's possible. Maybe that's really what's going on. But the bottom line is, it's a, it's an action I take that produces a response. It's as simple as that. The, the drugs and alcohol are lower in caloric expenditure, like dramatically and also concomitantly higher in the reward that they produce. That's essentially mm. the addictive nature, right? So you have a couple of parts of it. The addictive nature, which is the, the automatic response, and not everybody responds the same way to this stuff. There's some people that take an opiate, like, oh, it made me stick to my stomach. I just don't yes. like that, and they never touch it again. Never people touch like, it again. People like you and me put a substance in our body, and they're like, man, like, I lose my job, I become unemployed, I become homeless. <laughs> I'm like, I kind of want some more. <laughs> like, it's 
kind of, it's not so bad, you know, <laughs> but it's like it, when we're getting to the spiritual unwellness and I even asked you at the beginning, like, what do you think that was or is, or what have you for me? I think it's just being okay with who I am in, in a very general sense, right? Because when I have been on that stuff, whatever it is, I've tried quite a bit, um, that there's some, some switch that gets flipped and it's like, okay, I'm okay. Like I don't have to do anything to get anything, you know, like I don't know what effect it has on the traumatic experiences. I don't know if I'm just enabled to feel them or don't have to feel them. All I know is in that moment, I'm in that moment. And I, there's no, the anxiety goes away. The fear goes away. I mean, a lot, yes. of what P, a lot of what PTSD is, is it becomes, in a sense, a generalized fear response. The amygdala starts firing off. And what that is, and this is, again, an idiot trying to explain uh, brain science, is <laughs> it kind of short, there's two paths from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, right? Very, very quick and efficient when it needs to be done. And that's an evolutionary thing again, right? Because if I run across a freaking tiger, you know, in the middle of the street, I'm like, okay, like fight, uh, freeze or flight. Like, I'm not going right. to fight that thing. I hope I don't pause in my tracks. I'm going to get the hell out of there. Like, get out of it, I don't like the way it's looking at me, right? But now how do we navigate that when it comes to an experience that happened in the past, let's say 20 years ago? And I'm sitting here on my couch and I'm feeling this, oh man, yeah, I just, I don't know what it is, but I just, I don't feel right. And meditating has an effect. Eating right has an effect. Diet, nutrition, all that stuff really, really matters. But man, my brain remembers when I took that one substance, I didn't feel this at all. And it just keeps looking for it. So what is that? Mm. I don't, it doesn't have to go this route, but like we talk about, the alcohol and the drugs being a symbol of the problem. And the problem is I'm just not okay with something to the point to where I'm looking outside to feel good inside. Yes. Wow. Now that so is a brilliant explanation. And so I, that's where like, in a lot of these programs of recovery, you need a higher power. You have, you, it doesn't even matter how you define it. It can be a religion, which is kind of like a prepackaged use your higher power <laughs> or it can be a spirituality thing, which you can define that however it is, right? Like my spirituality thing is meditating, being of service, a little bit of self-improvement. I mean, just very generally. Like I don't want the consequences to come with any of that stuff, right? And the consequences are dire. And you mentioned a very innocent circumstance. Like, dude, I want to be a firefighter. No one in America would ever tell you, mm, that's not a good idea, Terrence. But here you have this this big swell of something that we're not even programmed to acknowledge, especially as men coming up in this generation, right, and a being of service and being in the military. You're going to tell me as a military veteran that I need to deal with my emotions and my feelings before I do anything else. I don't have time for that. I got to go to school. I got to get a job. I got to make money. And boy, that that'll trip people up. And it sounded like it tripped you up. Did you become a fireman? I did not. So what happened was I started realizing how the scheduling works because I, I wanted to go to school. And that, at this time, online programming wasn't that big in a lot of colleges. So you still had to go to a physical brick-and-mortar building. And the way the fire, the fire department works here in Houston is you do rotating schedules. So, like, today you'll be Monday and Wednesday. Next, tomorrow you'll be Tuesday and Thursday, like that. So it just didn't make sense. I'm like, how am I going to finish college? and be a firefighter when I'm 
steadily going to be missing classes because my shift is going to rotate. So I said, ah, well, I'll just get my degree first, and then I'll go and be a firefighter. And, of course, that didn't happen because then that's when all those emotions and feelings and issues that I had buried, they crept back up before I could even finish school at this point. But I, long story short, I didn't even end up going to be a firefighter after I denied all the help. But I still had this pride working where I wasn't going to go back and ask for help at this point because I really thought I didn't need it. I mean, we were subtly told that, and and I can't tell you how many Marines that dealt with post-traumatic stress that wouldn't seek help because you were made to believe you were a bitch if you went and got help. Now, this Mm -hmm. is while you're in. Now, once you get out, then you're encouraged. But when you're in, you're not encouraged to do that. And a lot of guys, in order to move up in, in the Marine Corps, you have to do what's called a B billet. So a B billet, A billet would be your main job. B billet would be like recruiting, uh, a Marine security guard, MSG around the world, or a drill instructor. Okay. If you got hit with post-traumatic stress disorder, you couldn't do any of those. Basically, right. they looked at you as broken. And they would, they would, they could take your security clearance, put you in a job like just, you know, maybe being a cook, which is not a bad job, but it's not a good job if that's not what you desire, or yeah. do a job that didn't require a, a security clearance, which is not many of those jobs you can do in the military that don't require some level of security clearance. So they could do you like that if you got diagnosed, or they could medically discharge you. I'm not sure what the policy is now. It may be worse. But at this time, they didn't want to treat it inside the military. Mm-hmm. You were broken if right. you had post-traumatic stress. Sure. Yeah, I know from, from my experience when we had a we had an incident, my first deployment, and we come back, and they have us talk to a counselor, right, a psychologist. And I'm not dumb, right? I don't know what the policy says, but I know I'm not stupid and I want my job. If I admit to having any sort of issues whatsoever, and occasionally we get asked, especially for, I think, the, the physical checkups, how many drinks do you have a week? Again, I'm not going to say zero because they won't believe it, and I don't need them. I don't need that spotlight on me. But I also don't tell them the truth. So That's I right. I have to find the gray area and circle them, ah, you know, probably tight, maybe 10 a week. Um, the reality <laughs> is I probably had half of that in a day <laughs> before I went into work, right? So, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dumb. I know what the questions are lending themselves to. And if nothing else, it's the possibility that if I admit to having some sort of an issue, I've got to do more work. I have to make more uh, scheduling. I have to have more appointments to go talk to people about this stuff and, in my mind, convince them that, yeah, it happened, but I'm okay with it. But if I just mm-hmm. say no across the board, hey, you haven't, he's obviously doing a PTSD screening. You think about it. Do you have nightmares about it? Do you feel like you're kind of there when you're you know, here at home? Nope, 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 nope. Some of that I didn't. <laughs> I legitimately didn't. But I already made up my mind. I'm just going to say no to all this stuff so that I can go to work. Like, I, I, I can't pull the trigger. I can't hit the, the microphone if I have a diagnosis and, and have to be on medication and all this stuff, right? Mm. They just, and it may be different. It may, somebody probably has a different experience with this. But my concept and understanding while I was there is, at least in the Navy and in Special Forces, they just didn't have the mechanism in place to protect and to treat people that have been through some stuff or that are having no. issues. Right off the bat, here's an example, zero tolerance, zero, means 
you can drink, get in, into a car wreck, go to rehab, and mostly come back to work and probably, to an extent, still be in the Navy. But if you're, say, trying to get your life back together and you admit during that drinking spree that, yeah, you, you, you took a Vicodin to kind of come down or whatever, you're gone. Like gone. Anyone, you admitted to taking a substance that's not alcohol that wasn't prescribed to you. You're 100% gone, right? Gone. I mean, that's, yes, a, that's, a, that's an extreme hypothetical. The point is, just like you said, you just want to say no, whether it's pride, I don't want to be, I don't want to be seen as weak, right? Or I'm just, I, know how, I know how to play the game. If I just act like I'm normal and present a face of normalcy, they don't have to see all the problems. They, they don't have to send up a report to the commander who has to report to hire that says, hey, you might want to look after this dude, and then my security clearance gets pulled, and then I can't train, and then I can't be with the guys who I've known closer than my own family members. I, I, I can't do any of that stuff. I become inert. Why would I possibly ask for help? This is a huge, huge problem. Huge part problem. Of, this is part of why I, I continue to talk with people. This is part of the nonprofits, like everyone, not even just Climb for Wounded War, like everything, man. It's not just catching people as they come out. Part of this deal needs to be the awareness of the way things are. We have to look at the status quo, which is people are going to have problems. They're human beings. There's only so much the military can do, right? But I wonder if they're really maximizing their resources to try and do that. I think with each success, and I hate to put it like this, but let's talk reality. With each suicide, I think it becomes more and more apparent that this stuff can be caught before they leave the military, not after. Yes, not after. Yes. Oh, man. I can't and tell you how many suicides I've been involved with. Man, and you're, you're a survivor. You and I are still alive. We have similar backgrounds. We have similar recovery stories, right? So it, we really – part of this is we need to understand kind of what we went through and send that message outward. I can't hold the gold. Right? Even if I do get to a point where I've figured something out, which I don't know if my brain is ever, ever going to reach that kind of a point, but to be there for somebody else and to say, here's what I've done so far, and here's what I think kind of matters, and here's also what's missing in my life and what I see in other people's lives. You know, that's a purpose. That's, kind of, that's a service component. That's the same component that got you to go uh, try and be in the Army and end up in the Marines. That's right. <laughs> so what does that what does that look like now for you? Like what's what's your what do you prioritize now? What's what's your day like? Well, so I've I've done uh let's see, two stints in a drug rehabilitation facility. Right. It you know <laughs> I I went and then got you know, thought I was healed and relapsed and then checked myself in again and and this time I've had a put together a little bit of recovery time. A uh, few months, four four mm-hmm. months to be exact, almost five months. So, yes. like my sponsor, and for those who don't know what a sponsor is, the AA terms, it's nothing more than a mentor. So my my sponsor in the in the AA program or NA program, he tells me every day. He says, either you're working on your recovery or you're working on your relapse. So what are you working on today? Because I'm always mm-hmm. working on something, right? You know. And so my day right now is just I'm focused on just my recovery. Really nothing else. I have a million business ideas. I want to get a higher degree and do all of this. But until I focus on that and get that kind of under wraps, I know none of this other stuff is going to manifest. So right now I'm fortunate enough to have good insurance where I'm able to just be in the program. Uh, So my day, I usually start off in the morning. I wake up. 
I usually read what we what we call a big book, which is the the guidebook for alcoholic uh, Alcoholics Anonymous program, which has great stuff in it. I usually start my day with something like that, and then throughout the rest of the day, if it's not exercise and nutrition, I'm always doing some kind of self improvement, whether it's working on codependency, making sure I'm not falling in these unhealthy love cycles, just getting a relationship, like you said earlier trying to find an outside answer for an inside problem. So just making sure that I'm keeping those things in check so that I don't keep starting projects and, and not finishing them. Because I noticed that I just went through a fuck it mindset over the last few years. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, I hadn't filed taxes in about four or five years, so I've had to go back and unfuck that, Yeah, just let my finances go, completed, completely depleted my savings, spending all my money on opiates because they can get pretty expensive. So I just left a, a, a shit storm all around me that now that I'm sober, it can be overwhelming some days because I'm having to deal with this, but I know this is part of my recovery because mm-hmm. in my addiction, I can just whisk it away like it's not even happening and just forget about it. And that was easy to me for me to do. Now I cannot do that. I have to deal with this shit but I'm learning to do it one step at a time, little by little, because I want everything to just be over with. I want my life to be back on the right path. I want to accomplish all my dreams, but I know it's a process. It took me time to get to this point, so it's going to take me time to get out. But because we have that warrior spirit, I know I won't quit. Hmm. I just remind myself that quitting is not really an option, even though it is an option. I can quit, but for me, I don't want to quit. I want to be an example of not the perfect linear path to success, but that you can have some ups and downs in this shit. You can have some hurdles and some roadblocks, and you can still make it no matter what. So my success is probably more circular than linear. You know, Uh I go in circles for a while, but I always break out and I always move towards what my ultimate goal is. So my life right now is a complete fucking mess, but I'm grateful to have my health, my strength, to be in my right mind, to have good people around like yourself and others to kind of help me navigate this process so I don't isolate and feel alone because I'm not alone. And with with my higher powers help, with God's help, and with due diligence and just being persistent, a year later I'll look back and laugh at this shit, you know. So I'm just taking it one step at a time. So that's kind of my day. But exercise and nutrition is the cornerstone of all my recovery. Because one consistent I've noticed over my life is that I've never put drugs and alcohol in my body in an excessive manner and been on a good exercise and nutrition program. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm eating healthy and I'm exercising on the regular, I don't want to put that kind of work in and then go destroy my body. So that's just like my anti-substance. And again, I don't wake up every day and say, oh, I I can't get high today. I can't get drunk today. I don't, my mind just doesn't work like that. That's, that's, a, that's a fear-based approach. I just wake up today and I say, you know, I'm going to remain sober today and I'm going to let the day take me where it takes me and I'm going to be content and I'm going to practice acceptance because you summed it up. The reason we turn to substances is mostly because we haven't learned to just be content with who we are. We're trying to change who we are. We're trying to change the way we feel as opposed to just being grateful for who I am. You know, I have a lot to offer to other people. I have a lot to offer to the world. and But you don't see any of that when you're in your addictive mind. All you see is 
how far you got to go, how much shit you done fucked up, what I didn't do right over here, I should have done better over here, and that destroys you. So now I'm just learning acceptance, grateful, hey, I'm only in control of my attitudes and my efforts. That's it. Everything else is outside of my control. I have no control over others. I have no control over the weather. I have no control over coronavirus, but I have control over my attitude and my effort. Keep those things in check, and then before you know it, I'll, I'll pull out of this, and and we'll laugh, and we'll we'll you know look back, and hopefully we can be of service and help pull other people out the fire or prevent them from going into the fire if at all possible. Right. Awesome, man. Well, dude, that's thank you for being on the podcast. It's it's amazing to hear people's stories. Like you're one of <laughs> one of the coolest people to like talk to in general. I was like, I got to get this guy on here. He's got an <laughs> awesome story it. and a great way to say it. Um, and I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to to check in on me. You know, because I tend to isolate as well, so <clears throat> it helps pull me out of that. Um, but yeah, man, just want to say thank you for being on the podcast. No, thank you, man. Thank you for the invite. Just thank you for your friendship. And most importantly, thank you for the service. You know, thank you for service to the nation and the service work you're doing for veterans. So keep up the good work. Anything I can do to ever help, you know I'm here, and I know you're always there for me as well. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please read the show notes for any links or other amplifying information mentioned or used in the production of today's show. Climb 4 is a registered 501c3. To purchase merchandise, contribute donations, or to apply for hiking camping equipment, or to send us a message, please visit Climb 4 at www.climb-4.org. That's www.climb-4.org. And if you're a veteran and wish to be on the podcast, please send an email to info at climb-4.org. Once again, that's info at C-L-I-M-B dash the number four dot O-R-G. See you next time.